We're going to be back in Mark chapter 5 this morning. And um, Mark is, is the immediate gospel, moves along very quickly. And under the last two sermons, we've, we've actually spent um, two specific Sundays in each passage. And, and uh, we won't typically do that, but we did that last time with the, the uh, Jesus and the healing the demoniac and, and the, the casting of the thousands of demons out into the swine because that was such a significant passage. And, and this, this scene is like a miracle within a miracle. There's actually two healings. There are two circumstances that take place. One is the, the woman with the issue of blood, and, and that is on the way to actually do the healing, the ultimate miracle in all of these scenes that, that we're seeing, which is the raising of Jairus's daughter from the dead, which we're going to, to look at today. And it's a, it's a fascinating scene. Um, it is a, it's a scene where Jesus attends a funeral and, and puts an end to it. And as I was preparing, I, my mind immediately, every time I think of a funeral, there, there's a couple, of, a couple of memories that I go back to. And one of them is just, just etched in my mind. It was when I was in my early 20s, and, and one of the acquaintances, it wasn't like a, a super close friend, but he was a friend. We, we ran around together periodically, but he wasn't like a, like a, like a best friend. And he, was, he was killed in a car accident. And I hadn't seen him for several months because uh, we lived in Charleston and he'd went off to, um, to college at WVU, which is about two and a half hours away from, from my home. And he was there. He was in his first year of college and he left another buddy's apartment and, uh, after dinner. And somehow, we don't, we don't know, um, his Jeep went over a, a steep embankment and, and he was killed. And just a few months before that, he was sitting on, he was sitting on my front porch and and we were talking about college and life and, and, and him going there. And, and so the news uh, to, to hear this, this friend of mine was dead was, was very shocking. And when the funeral took place, it was, it was local. They obviously buried him close to home, so it was right there. So I went, and I can remember it being very, very crowded because, because he was, was young. If, if you are blessed by God enough to, to live long enough, you may end up outliving your friends. And so if that happens and there's a, only a few people at your funeral, it just may mean that all of them's already in heaven and they're rejoicing there. But when a young person dies, it's typically packed because they're, they're young. It's, it's, it's unexpected usually. So it's very crowded. And I can remember the mood was, was very somber. And I'll never forget, though, never forget. I mean, this is one of these memories that, was, that, that is etched in my mind. I will never forget when his fiancée came into the room. It was kind of set up normal, like, like we would, you know, casket up front, and people were, were, were here and mingling around. And there's kind of like a, a normal pathway that, that you walk in. It was like in a sanctuary, and she comes in the back doors of the of, of the sanctuary. They were to be to be married the following year. And when she came in the back doors of the of the sanctuary, she looked up and her eyes landed on the on the casket. In the minute that she saw it, even at a distance, she began to she began to moan. And I can remember it vividly because I've never heard anything like it. But since then, and I'd obviously never heard anything like it in my in my 20s, it was a, it was a, 
and I couldn't even repeat it. It was it almost didn't sound human. It was a deep groan, like way down inside, like a person who was who was hurting in their soul, and they didn't have any way to express it other than this this guttural moan. And she walked down the aisle, and her the the, the parents of the of the boy that, that had passed away were, were with her, and, and she literally collapsed about, about halfway down. And, and the, the mother and father picked her up under one arm and, and, and took her all the way up there. It's the first time that she'd, she'd been able to, to, uh, to see him, I guess. I'm not sure. And when she got to the front, she just laid over the open casket and just sobbed. And I'm telling you, I mean, even as an unsaved man, I burst into tears. It was one of the saddest things that I've, that I've ever seen. And as I look back on that now, what, what, what's even sadder is, is I do not know of any point where, where, where that young man had ever trusted Christ. And I don't believe that his girlfriend, his fiance, knew, knew the Lord. It's a testimony. You know, we sorrow with hope. Well, in our passage today, we're going to observe a funeral that Jesus attends that's, that's, very, that's very mournful. It's going to look different than what, what we normally do in mourning, and, and yet the outcome is drastically, drastically different. When I went to that funeral, we, we had the preaching, and, and the preacher said some really nice things about how this was a young man and he shouldn't have, have died, but then we left and, and they put him in the ground. Well, that's not what happens in in the scene that we have today, of a very young girl, 12 years old. So if you're not there, I want you to open to Matthew chapter 5. And we're going to be looking at verses 35 through, through 43, the end of the, of the chapter, where Jesus is declared, His power is put on display, He's Lord over, over death. And last week we saw Jesus heal a woman who had suffered under the threat of death for 12 years, the woman with the issue of blood. And now, in this passage, he heals a girl of 12 years old who actually experienced death. And, and the lesson, the lesson that, that's in this is what, what he does with, with Jairus and, and, and the disciples that get to witness it and what he does with the other people that don't. There's a, he calls Jairus to steady his faith. He makes a contribution to help him. And if you'll do that, you'll get to see what God is able to do. And that's a privilege. It's a privilege to witness what, what God does. That's, that's the lesson for us. God calls us to steady our faith. He shows us how he helps us. He, he will contribute things along our path to to assist us in steadying our faith and fixing our faith on Him. And if you'll do that, if you'll steady your faith, keep, your, keep yourself fixed on Christ, you'll see what God is able to do, and that's a privilege. That's, that's the sermon, the lesson in a nutshell. So let's look at Mark chapter 5, beginning in verse, in verse 35. This is the final presentation of a series of stories that give us insight into the power of Jesus. And last time we said... Jesus is Lord of her death, and we saw that in a faith-filled request for care. This is when Jairus comes and says, my daughter is at the point of death. Will you come? And the Lord comes. He goes. He goes with him. And on the way, we saw this fateful delay for compassion. Jesus expresses compassion for this woman who, 
who has been who's been sick for a while. That's in verses 25 to 34. And and this morning we're going to look at this full display. He 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 displays his absolute power, his full lordship for confirmation that he is God of of a very God. Let's look at this full display beginning in verse verse 35. For now for those of you who weren't here last time, not going to be long, but Jesus and the disciples return from the other side of the lake, and there's a crowd that greets them. And we're quickly introduced in this story to a man and a woman who stand out from the, from the crowd. The man is rich, respected, a leader of the synagogue. He's a ruler, and the woman is poor. She's excommunicated. She's, she's humble, and she's an outcast. And the, the ruler is brought, brought low in faith. He has to come to Christ in faith. He's desperate. And she is lifted high through faith. And being in her desperation, she reaches out to Christ. And, and they both show us that there's a blessing, whether God brings us low or lifts us high. The two have no relationship to each other. And the man was introduced first, Jairus, and then the woman. And now we're back to the man in verse 35. And there are four scenes in verse 35 through the end. There's the messengers that come and relay the news. There's the mourners that Jesus walks into the middle of in verse 38. There's the mocking that they do. They laugh at what Jesus says. And then there's the miracle, the actual miracle that, that takes place. And I want to tell you, this, this, is, this is not Bible stuff, folks. This is not Sunday school stories. This is absolute, 100% historical fact that it took place, that there was a 12-year-old girl that was dead, and Jesus Christ takes her by the hand and tells her, arise, and she gets up and walks. Absolute fact. No question about it whatsoever. That should not be any surprise to us. If, if God is able to speak the world into existence, if he is able to create Wombs to begin with, he's able to recreate wombs and heal them. If he's able to give life to begin with, he's able to give it back to, to one who has, who has passed. Look at verse 35. Because Mark begins here with this little word, while. That's such an important word. While he was still speaking. While Jesus is still speaking, saying, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. Be healed of your affliction. While that is happening, Jairus is there waiting. The disciples are there waiting. While Jesus is saying these words, some came from the ruler of the synagogue's house and said, Your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher anymore or, or any further? And here you have these messengers, and they bring some very troubling news, if you're Jairus. And, and, and it's obvious that, that they know who Jesus is, and they know why he's coming to the house. Because they say, don't trouble the teacher anymore. So they don't just run up and say, uh, where have you been? Your daughter has died. They, they know why Jesus is coming to the house. Now, were, were, they, were, were they with Jairus whenever, they, whenever he came to Jesus and bowed before him? We don't know. And they went on ahead and didn't stop for the woman, and they got to the house, and now they've come back and re relayed the news. Or did Jairus say, I, I'm, I have no other hope. I'm going to Jesus. I'm going to find Jesus and bring him back. And so they were at the house. We don't know, but they come from the house, and they relay this, this news. Your daughter is dead. There is no reason for, for the teacher to come. Don't, don't trouble him to, any further. And I mean, the, the tension of that moment should be obvious. 
the compassion that Jesus shows toward the woman causes a delay, and enough time has passed that this, this, this little girl dies. She's no longer sick to the point of death. She's died. And what they're saying is now it's too late. That's what they mean when, when they say, um, don't trouble the teacher any further. He can go on his journey. He's a teacher. And, and a teacher can't help this situation right now. Little do they know that no situation is hopeless when the Son of God is near, right? I mean, none. Verse 36, though, records the Lord's response. And this is where the lesson begins. It's, 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 it's good. As soon as Jesus heard the word that was spoken, or some of your translations may say, uh, um, Jesus not heeding their words. As soon as Jesus heard the word that was spoken, or not heeding their words, he said to the ruler of the synagogue, that, that's Jairus, Stop fearing. Do not be afraid. Only believe. Fear not. Only believe. He calls him to steady his faith. Do you think you would need your faith steadied at that moment? I would have been. I mean, they're following the Lord, and somebody runs up. You're on the way to the daughter's house, and she has died. I mean, I can just imagine what my heart would would do. And so Jesus doesn't address the men. In fact, he ignores them. He ignores what they say. And he turns to, to Jairus and says, Fear not, only believe. Now, it's interesting the word that's used here. As soon as Jesus heard the word, or or not heeding their word, it's it's used seven times in the in the Septuagint, the Greek Old Testament, and that word's only used once in the New Testament, other than here. And every time it's translated to ignore. It's important. Jesus ignores the men who brought the message. He ignores the words when they're describing the circumstances, the current circumstances. Jesus ignores. He doesn't address them. He treats it. He treats their words like it is irrelevant. Is it irrelevant? Well, humanly speaking, no, but divinely speaking, yes. And he addresses Jairus, and, and he, who came to him by faith, and he gives him an example, and he gives us an example of what to do when your circumstances don't match what God has said that, that you should do. You ignore it, you don't heed, and you fear not. And you only believe. Now, now fear not. Only believe. It, they're, they're two imperatives. They're present imperatives. They're, they're commands. Jesus is saying, stop your current fearing. Brought about by the news of the messengers. Jesus can see the heart of the man. He, he watched the blood drain out of his heart. He, he knows that, that anxiety immediately came when he, when he heard those words. And Jesus doesn't pay any attention. He ignores what those individuals says. He looks right at Jairus and he says, stop, stop fearing. Only believe. It's a call to keep his faith where it should be. Not in the words, not in the circumstances, not in the news, but, but in me. Ignore the news and trust me, is what Jesus is saying. And Luke adds that Jesus says, and she will be well, she will be saved. You'll see what I am able to do. If you, if you ignore your current circumstances, what it seems like. And you stop fearing because you're going to put your faith, you're going to keep your faith fixed on me. You'll see what I am, am able to do. 
Now, has anything changed with the, with the news that, that these men brought? Well, you say, humanly speaking, yes. The, the girl was, was sick and now she's, she's dead. The, the circumstances have changed, but God hasn't changed. Christ's power hasn't changed. And that's where you put your faith. That's where he calls him to put his faith. Keep it here. He's saying, Jairus, keep your faith where it started. You came and you bowed before me and you asked me to come and you believed that I was able to, to heal your daughter from sickness and nothing has changed. The object of our faith does not, does not change when our circumstances do. They can get better or they can get worse. And yet God never changes. Neither do His promises or His power. Now, there's, there's two sides to that coin, isn't there? You're tempted when your circumstances seem to contradict what the Bible says. It's, it, it's, it gets worse. And I'd say you're also tempted whenever, maybe even to a greater degree, when it gets, when it gets better. What, what, if, what if someone had come? What if these individuals who came and brought this news that said the daughter was, was dead, what if they came as Jesus and Jairus were, were on the way and they said the opposite? Uh, uh, Jairus, great news. Your, your daughter, she looks like she's starting to rally. I mean, there's color back in her face, and, and, and she's asked for something to, to drink. You don't need to bring the teacher here I- anymore. Would, would that change his need for, for Christ or his need for faith or, or where his faith needed, needed to be, where it needed to be placed? No. The circumstances don't rule where, where the anchor is, is, to, be, is to be placed. And like you, I've got news that, that's made my heart sore. <laughs> and I think, man, this is wonderful. Life is so great. I'm so encouraged by what God is doing in my life and in the church and this person and whatever it is. And then the next day, I've gotten news and, and I've just, uh, I just, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I, 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 why did you even call me into ministry, Lord? I'm just gonna give up. I mean, you know, Elijah, right? You've been there. The prophets of Baal one minute, and then he's running from Jezebel the next. We're, we're, we're frail. We're tempted that way. So Jesus calls us to steady our faith, to ignore our circumstances, good or bad. I can remember Jerry Falwell saying, B.R. Lakin used to tell him all the time, boy, whenever it's good, it's never as good as you think it is. And whenever it's bad, it's never as bad as you think it is either. It's true. Whenever... There's a change in your circumstances. It doesn't change the, the need for your faith. And emotions pass, but faith is fixed on Christ and fixed on His words. Of course your feelings are going to blow. I mean, why, why do you think Jesus says stop fearing? Of course your feelings are going to blow. Of course it's normal to feel anxious and anxiety. So when the Bible says be anxious for nothing, it's not assuming that your heart is not going to be tempted to fear. It, it, it doesn't mean that you're going to get... Uh, you know, too too happy because of circumstances, or 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 too too fearful. Of course, your feelings are going to blow about, and God brings us back to 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 stop trusting in your emotions. But where will you trust? If it's Christ, then it's then that's real faith. I mean, even unbelievers can be happy if circumstances are are right, and that's how you can tell whether it's. Whether it's real, when, when emotions settle, where is your faith anchored? I've seen many people come to Christ in desperation only to walk away whenever the pressure's off. 
And Jairus here is obviously not an example of that because if that was the case, he'd be like the he, he would be like a, a a rich young ruler who comes and and doesn't get what he what he hopes to hear and and walks away. People that that come and then walk away based on emotions are. Jesus has already described their stony ground. Faith springs up quickly and then it dies off. Good soil receives the Word of God and bears fruit that, that remains regardless of what your, your emotions do. But while you're called to steady your faith, keep your faith fixed on Christ and on His words, God doesn't leave us helpless in those situations. I love this about, about the Lord. Now, I also want you to think about the fact that here's Jesus and, and He goes... And he's in the midst of the crowd. He's accessible. He's compassionate. He's, he's meeting Jairus right in the moment whenever his heart is, is being blown about. And, and he doesn't leave him helpless in this moment. There's a call for him to steady his faith. But there's also been a contribution that the Lord's made to help support his faith. Wasn't there? And think about... The words of Jesus, they're in response to, to these words of, of these men. Your daughter is dead while trouble the, trouble the cheat, uh, teacher any further. And again, roller coaster. I'm sure he was lifted, his heart was lifted when, when Jesus agrees to come to his house. I'm sure he's anxious whenever there's, whenever there's a delay. He stops to deal with the woman. The disciples show impatient in their question, what do you mean who touched you? I'm sure his heart sank whenever he... Whenever he heard the words, your daughter has died, which is why Jesus calls him to focus on the object of his faith, which is, which is Christ being Lord. But think of what the Lord's done for him along the way. The delay to heal the woman does allow the daughter to die. But think of what Jairus got to witness on the way. He got to witness the healing of a woman on the way to heal his own daughter, which no doubt strengthens his faith. Maybe he needed that. Maybe maybe he needed that. He gets to see Jesus just by the, the power that, that is in him, a woman touch the tassel on his garment and be healed on the way to heal his daughter. Sometimes God takes us on a route that, that we're not expecting, but we still arrive at the destination, don't we? He graciously gives us something that we need through, through a delay. And if God does that, you need, to remember, you need to remember two things. He's doing it for something even better than, than, than whatever your plan was. And if the Lord asks more of your faith, He grants more grace for you to exercise it. We were, we were talking, I think it was... It was last Wednesday night. We were looking. We were looking in the Psalms, and we were just talking about the fact that that aren't you glad? Whenever you start on your Christian journey, wherever that is, whatever God calls you to do, you don't know everything up front. I mean, if I knew what it was like to to, to go through all the things that God was going to call me to do and go through as a believer, I I, I may have said I don't know about this deal, but He doesn't do that. He He gives. As he, as he calls you to exercise more faith, he grants more grace for you to exercise it on the, on the way. And, and the delay, yes, puts Jairus in a position to exercise more faith, but the Lord also grants him more grace along the way 
in order for him to, to exercise it. And with that, they're off to the, to the house. Look at verse 37. Now you're coming up on the, the mourners. He permitted no one to follow him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. Then he came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and he saw a, a tumult, a tumult, a, a chaotic scene. And those who wept and wailed loudly. Now, there's this large crowd following him. And it specifically says here, this is the first time that Peter, James, and John are, are singled out. In fact, there's an article there, the Peter, James, and John, which, which tells us they're like the three. The, the, the first time they're grouped like this. He doesn't allow the crowd to come, and he doesn't allow even all the disciples to come. It's only Peter, James, and, and John. And so, the obvious question is, why did he do that? And I think one is practical. Um, not everyone could enter into the house or the little room that the girl was in. You can't take this big crowd in there. You can't take all 12 of the disciples into... I mean, this is not like walking into a room like this. This is a little room. And I also think it's purposeful. The, these are the three men that are going to be his, his selected conduit. These are the three men that are going to observe, going to hear what Jesus says, going to observe what Jesus does, and then they're going to go relay that to others. And Jesus could only give himself intimately to a, a few people. I mean, think about it. He had 12. One of them was of the devil. So he has 11 faithful disciples, and three are the ones that are in the, the inner circle. And it's important for leaders to understand that. You can't be all things to, to all people. And it's also important for people to remember that. Can you, can, could you think about what, what was going on in the heart of the, of, the other, of the other disciples? When he says, you guys stay there. Peter, James, and John, you, you come on with me. I mean, these are the guys later. One of them has their mother come to the Lord and says, can I sit, can, can one of my boys sit on your right hand and one on the left? They're arguing who's going to be greatest in the kingdom. And three of them get to be, get to be pulled aside and go into this special place with the Lord. You think that there's some sanctification going on in their own hearts? You better believe there is. And if God exalts somebody over you, it may be because God wants to put his finger on how you're responding, your own pride and your own arrogance. You may think you're a whole lot more important than you really are. And Peter, James, and John are, are, are the, the ones that, that get to experience this, and then they're going to relay it back. And Peter, James, and John see this first resurrection because it foreshadows Christ's own resurrection, and they're going to be the first three that will proclaim it to the brethren in Jerusalem. Peter is the one that preaches at Pentecost. Peter and John are the ones that are teaching. Up front. And James is the one martyred by Herod in Acts chapter 12, verse 2, in the persecution of Jerusalem. So these three end up doing exactly what Jesus intends them to do. I would also note these are the same three that see the transfiguration. Look at verse 38. They get to be part of it. Then he came to the house, to the ruler of the synagogue, and he, and he sees this funeral already underway. And the first part... Is, is, is going on. I mean, this confirms the report of the messengers. And, and no doubt, Jairus at this moment is repeating the words to himself that the Lord said, fear not only believe, fear not only believe. I mean, can you imagine his heart when he walks up 
and he sees the mourner and the large... I mean, he's saying to himself, I'm saying to myself, fear not only believe, fear not only... I'm just steady your faith, steady your faith. Remember what he did with the, with the, with the girl. I believe, help my unbelief. And he walks up on the funeral. And I, the funerals in, in this day are very different from funerals in, in our day. It's almost exactly the, the opposite. There, there were three parts to a Jewish funeral. And, and the first came as you expressed your grief very loudly. And it required you to, to tear your clothes at the, at the funeral. Now, when we go to a funeral, what do we do? We get dressed up. We, we find our best suit or our best dress. We want to show respect for the people that are there. So we, get on, we put on nice clothes and we go to, to, to Witten's or Duguid or wherever, wherever it is. You did the opposite in that day. You looked for something that, that you didn't care if it was going to rip because you tore it whenever you, whenever you got there. You wore something you didn't mind tearing up. And like everything that the Jews did, the, laws, the law keepers came up with rules. The scribes made 39 regulations on how to tear your clothing at a funeral. Tearing was to be done standing up. And if you're related to the dead person, you had to tear your garment directly over your heart. If you were not related to the person, you could tear your garment, you know, somewhere else, maybe near your heart. And once the garment was torn, you wore the torn garment. You wore the torn garment for 30 days to show that you were in an attitude of, of mourning. I guess you just tore it a little bit or you sewed, sewed it back up to where someone could see. I, I'm, not, I'm not sure, but you had to wear it for 30 days. That was the first stage. The second stage is paid mourners were, were brought in. Think, think of it like what we do when we hire a, a funeral company to handle it. We, we hire them to, to do certain things. Well, you hired mourners to do certain things in, in those days. And, and typically they were, they were women. And they would form a circle around whoever the, the leader of the, of the funeral party was. And, and they would dance. It was like a dance of death, and, and they would sway from, from left to right, and they would hang their heads down, and, and their hair would flow, and it would move back and forth, and it was a rhythmic movement, and they would use their hands, and they would wail as this was, as this was going on, and they would, they would increase in intensity the closer it came to the, to the burial. They would get louder and louder and louder. And the third part of the funeral was... was, was was playing flutes in a disorderly way, and the notes didn't go together. See, you, this, this is the chaotic scene that the Lord walk, walks up in. People that are there that are crying out, they're tearing their clothes, doing it while they're standing up the right way over their heart. You've got the, the dance going on, the women with their heads hanging, wailing, moving rhythmically back and forth, and the flutes are playing, but it's not beautiful music like we heard this morning. It's just notes here and, and there. That's what Jesus walks up to. It's a big funeral, too, because this is a, a ruler of the, of, the, of the synagogue. In verse 39, And he came in, and he said to them, Why make this commotion and weep? This child is not dead, but, but sleeping. Luke says, he says, stop weeping. Matthew says, he tells them, get out. Uh, and the funeral's over, folks. The Lord's here. Now, can you imagine sitting in Witten Chapel with the organ playing softly, somber, 
with the casket and the body there, because that's how we do it. And, and Jesus comes in and says, what's with all the funeral music? Why are you so somber? Stop weeping. Get out of here. <laughs> that person laying there is, is not dead. They're only asleep. Now, if you didn't know that was Christ, or you didn't believe that was Christ, you would probably do the same thing that they did, which is, look at verse 40, they, they ridiculed him. They're like, security, could you get this guy out of here? When he had pulled them all outside, he throws them out of the house after making the statement, the child is not dead, but, but sleeping. Not all of you might be interested in this, but, but I was. In, in, in 19th century liberalism, whenever they were trying to explain all of the miracles away from the Bible, this was one of the passages that they used because, of course, it can't be a miracle that Jesus actually rose this, you know, caused this little girl to rise from the dead. So, so rationalists said that, that what Jesus actually saved this little girl from was a premature death. She was actually just in a coma, and they were going to bury their own daughter. So Jesus comes and saves them from burying their own daughter, who was actually alive. How ridiculous can you get? I mean, the messengers knew this girl was dead. They run and tell Jairus not to trouble him to come. The father knew it. His faith had to be steadied. The mourners knew it. They laughed at scorn at Jesus' statement. Jesus knows she's dead. His statement just means that that with him there, it's, it's as if she were only sleeping. His statement means her experience of death will be so short, it will be like she took a little nap. The Bible talks a lot about time, doesn't it? Your life is but a vapor, appears and vanishes away. And Jesus redefines death as a temporary condition for believers here. It's a temporary condition. It's beautiful when you think about it. It's such a perfect metaphor. Death for us is like only our bodies only taking a little nap. Now, absent from the body, present with the Lord, but those bodies are, are just going to take a little nap until the resurrection. It's going to be just like a blip on a screen. You're going to be with the Lord, and, and one day is going to go on and on and on. It's such a perfect metaphor for death that, that the apostles use it in the New Testament in their letters. Paul does. 1 Corinthians 15. For us, death is a temporary thing. And they begin laughing and he begins putting them out. They were absolutely certain the girl was dead and Jesus responds to their scorn and, and laughter with, with, with putting, putting them out. And I can promise you one thing, that their laughter stopped whenever he put them outside and whenever they saw the little girl who who they thought was dead, walking around in Capernaum later. And I thought about there's going to be another day in the life of Christ when there's going to be mockers at a death and mouths put to silence by another resurrection. Jesus comes in in verse 40. He took the father and the mother of the child and those who were with him, which is Peter, James, and John, and he enters into the room where where the child was 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 lying. Taking the child by the hand, he speaks Aramaic words, Talitha kum or kumi, which means young one or little lamb. 
rise. Now, don't miss this. Jesus is not talking to Peter, James, and John, or the mother and the father. Jesus is speaking to a dead girl. Don't think that he can't speak to, to you or one of your loved ones that you're, that you're praying for whenever they're dead in their sins. He can speak to, to dead people. They can hear, and when he calls, the dead obey. Now look at verse 42. Immediately, the girl arose and walked, for she was 12 years old. He speaks, and she rises. She rises, and she walks. She walks and they're dumbfounded. And they were overcome with great amazement. I mean, it's just rapid fire. I would have loved to have been there. They were completely astounded. It means bewilderment, out of your senses. There's no explanation for what they saw. The response of the disciples and the parents show that they know that they stood in the presence of death. And now they stand in the presence of the one who banished it. And he intervened in such a dramatic way that it left them speechless in an utter amazement, utter amazement. And I asked myself the question, why am I so amazed when God does what God's able to do? Why am I so amazed whenever he answers prayer? You answered the prayer. Doesn't he tell me he's going to answer the prayer? Look at verse 43. Faith is steadied. There's a contribution made to help that. He says, believe, stop fearing and believe, and you'll see what I'm able to do. They've now seen what Jesus is able to do, and that is a privilege. Verse 43. But he commanded them strictly that no one should know it and that something should be given to her to, to eat. What is that all about? Well, people argue about, well, he gave her the food to, so people would know and make sure that she's not a spirit. It's a little girl that needs eat. Well, it's showing Jesus compassion. I, I, honestly, it never crossed my mind why he said give her something to eat. What I was more fascinated by her question, why, why did he say tell, don't tell anybody about it? You just had a giant funeral. You ran everybody out. Everybody knows in Capernaum the girl's dead. What are you going to do, hide her in the closet for the next 60 years? I mean, how do you say, don't tell anybody? Does Jesus think that no one will know she's alive now? Of course he doesn't. It's public knowledge. The girl died. And when she's seen out in public, people are going to be amazed. I think his point here is the same in verse 41, whenever he only allows the mother and the father and and the disciples to experience it. Jesus casts out the doubters of the house, allowing only the parents of the girl and the three disciples to remain to see it. He's restricting the privilege of revelation for the unbelieving group. And he's granting the privilege of experiencing what God is able to do to those who are believing. He did not permit the scorners To witness the act of restoring the girl, they only got to see the after effects, but not how it happened. You realize it's a privilege to participate in spiritual things, 
Do you realize what kind of a blessing it is to have eyes to see and ears to hear? Do you realize what kind of a blessing it is to sit here and hear the Word of God and knock aside whatever it is that's distracting you and actually walk away with a nugget from the Lord? Do you realize what kind of privilege it is to hear the voice of your Creator? Matthew 5.8 says, says, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will what? See God. And you're going to see God one day. You're going to stand before Him. But right now you get to see Him. It's a privilege. You get to see Him. You get to see the Lord. And there are people every single day, every moment of every day, even right now, the heavens are declaring the glory of God. It's, it's, it's daylight here. It's night somewhere. Day or night, they're declaring that there is a God. He is Jehovah. Jesus is God declaring, and the majority of the creation ignores it. They can't see what is right in front of them because they suppress the truth in unrighteousness. And you have the privilege of knowing who God is, and you have the privilege of seeing what God does as you participate with Him in the church, in the Great Commission, in the Gospel, in your personal life, in hearing the Word of God. And that's a privilege. I wonder today, are you missing spiritual things because you're full of doubt and unbelief? Does it take more today, you've been a Christian for a while, does it take more today to amaze you about the Lord than it did before? Don't mistake growing harder to amaze with growing up. I'm not a child anymore. I've taught Sunday school. I've read the Bible through every, every year. You remember that Jesus says it's childlike faith that enters the kingdom of heaven. That's not childish faith. That's childlike faith. That's faith that takes God at His word without question. Skepticism and cynicism come from cold hearts that lack humility. When was the last time you saw, spiritualized, the Lord's hand at work in your life or around you? Could it be happening? You're just not getting the privilege to recognize it. Could God be at work at Timberlake Baptist Church and you're oblivious to it? Because of an unbelieving heart? Do you need to say, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief? Boy, I do all the time. And you know what helps me? To be in the Word, to pursue Christ in the Word on Sunday and every day and let the Lord call me to, to Brian... Stop fearing, only believe. And for the Lord to contribute to things along the way to, to strengthen my faith and to remind me, if, if you'll keep your faith fixed on me and on my word, you'll see what I'm, what I'm able to do and remind me that that's a privilege, that that's what He's done for me this week in this, in this passage. When you, when you put all these stories together, you, there's a theme about faith. The, the Lord has declared He... He is the Lord by His power and the storm and the demons and disease and death. But, but the disciples are criticized for, the, for their lack of faith. The, the demoniac shows faith by coming to Jesus and the woman is content, uh, commended for having it and, and Jairus is, is urged to, to keep it in the right place. And every scene, it always points to the one we're called to, 
to place our faith in Jesus, who is Lord. See, Lord, he is Lord. Is he yours? Yeah, he is. Is he your Savior? You'll bow before him as Lord one day. But will you bow before him acknowledging that he is God, or will you bow before him acknowledging he is God because you did it right now? He's, he's also your Savior. That's what he freely offers to all who will repent and believe.